I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, but more importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. How are you feeling today, bud? Now I'm feeling great. It's been a harried, busy morning, but I think we got everything you know, taken care of. I'm here. I'm present, focused, excited. So how does a therapist navigate this crazy life? You know what I mean? Because I think most people think of a therapist, they've got the rule book on who people are and how to react and stuff. But you have good days and you have bad days. Sure. And so do you do something that besides meditation that gets you through some troubling times or kind of hard things? Ah, Good question. Uh, I like to listen to things that make me laugh. So in between things I'm doing throughout the day. If I'm driving somewhere, uh, I'll either, uh, I'll usually listen to stand up comedy or something like that Mm -hmm. because that just sort of lightens my mood and helps me bring myself back to what's really important. Cause otherwise everybody, no matter what your job is, you can kind of get spun out on the details of what you're doing and it can feel like the most important thing in the world. And then you, you can get all in your head about stuff. So I, I like to laugh. That I would say that's something I do quite a bit. On an average, as a therapist, how many patients do you see in a day? Uh, in a day? Mm-hmm. It, it, uh, I'm sure it varies, it but varies. like an average. So I see too many. So, so if there's another psychologist or social worker out there listening, they're going to be like, that's not true. But in a week, I usually see 40 to 45 hours worth of patience. And when you think about that, I mean, most people, when they go to a therapist, they're working through issues, they're working through problems. It's usually pretty heavy conversation and and probably somewhat, I mean, laboring. You know what I mean? I mean, for sure. you. you know, well, yeah, it's, it's every person that comes in. I mean, nobody makes an appointment and spends the money <laughs> to come in and tell you things are super awesome. How are you doing, Matt? Like, that's not our role, right? So people are dealing with heavy stuff. Yeah. So what, what I'm getting to is that you'd be, you probably wouldn't, but uh, the general public might be surprised how many like first responders and, you know, mm-hmm. people out there that listen to this show yeah. that, that, that want somebody to talk to because their every day is seeing people on their worst day. Can Does be. that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for, I mean, we were talking well, about EMTs, nine one one, police officers, firemen, nurses. You, you know, yeah. I mean, emergency room people. I mean, it's their every day is seeing most Pe- people on their worst worst day. day. Yeah, that's and that's something to keep in mind. Um, actually, that's a great segue into May happens to be Mental Health Month, Mental mm-hmm. Health Awareness Month, and we often don't think about the caregivers and the mental health issues 
that they have. And so there are some therapists who specialize in seeing first responders and other, you know, therapists and psychologists and people that are out on the front lines because we need support uh, as well. So, yeah, that, that happens a, a lot. And uh, anytime you have the opportunity to show a little appreciation to a first responder, I would say you ought to take it because people are out on the front lines trying to help others. And the last couple of years have just been kind of socially stressful. They've been strange and and not that, uh, you know, our country hasn't gone through stressful social periods before. If you think about 9-11 and if you think about uh, Vietnam and, you know, Korea, World War II, like some of these global crises that have happened. But this one, this last two years has been a little bit different because while some of those big crises have united people, mm-hmm. Uh, the last couple of years have been co- somewhat dividing with uh, how people feel about COVID. We just learned today that Governor Cox has COVID. So regardless of one's political opinions, COVID is still a real thing. And the reality is uh, it's unfortunately become uh, a politicized issue when it really should have just stayed a health care issue. And uh, we have a lot of folks out there kind of divided. So I think there's a lot of unprecedented stress and and first responders are are uh, needed now more than ever. We live in a very divisive time. Yeah. And uh, things are going crazy. And I remember two years ago when we were right in the thick of COVID and, and, and I know COVID still a thing I'm, and I know that. But right when it was coming out and nobody knew what to do uh, and a lot of people were staying at home, there was a lot of isolation. And I remember you sitting in that exact chair right there going the next pandemic epidemic is going to be mental uh, health, mental health. Yeah. And here we are in May. It's mental health awareness. And, and I don't think we've done enough just to be honest with you. I mean, I think we're trying right. and everybody's trying. doing what they can, but it's one of those things that people don't understand. Mental health is, 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 is such a large umbrella and mm-hmm. most people don't know what falls underneath that or how to handle it or how to deal with it, where to find help, what kind of resources are available. Even when to say I need some help, you know, like uh, life in general is stressful and challenging. And we all like to, most of us like to be tough, you know, say, I'll just, I'll use my skills, I'll press through and that's all good and healthy. But at some point, sometimes you have to realize I could reach out and use a little bit of help and and guidance. And that's usually when I would say, if you've had more than a string of three or four days in a row where you haven't felt like yourself, if you're starting to have uh, thoughts that are like kind of hopeless and pessimistic uh, it, it, here's a fancy word, anhedonia. If you start to feel like things that used to be enjoyable are no longer enjoyable, like Casey, for you, if you went out to golf one day and it was a great golf day, but you left feeling like I didn't really enjoy myself, those sorts of uh, red flags are an indication that you maybe are getting worn down. A lot of people are worn down. I've had two conversations already today with people that employ other people about the difficulty getting people to work. And so there's just this strange social experiment, I guess, going on right now. And I do think that our mental health is taking a little bit of a hit. In fact, one article I read just last night uh, before I went to bed was talking about research over the last 10 years and correlating the rise of social media and and uh, you know digital devices like the iPhone in the hands of teenagers and their poor sleep and their decline in mental health. Isn't that interesting? 
here we are right now with more access, you know, right in the palm of your hand than ever before to talk to a crisis counselor, to get input and help on anything you need. Yet our teenagers are having some of the worst mental health issues across the board than they've ever had before. And one of the reasons is likely poor sleep due to being on their devices really late at night. And so when we when we look at research, sometimes we can uh, intervene in a positive way. So I would say one mental health thing you could do for your kids this month, anybody out there who has kids, and by the way, this applies to adults too, is learn to turn off devices maybe an hour before bed. I know that's going to cause major <laughs> conflicts with teenagers oh, all yeah. over. But if you can help them understand that what you put into your body uh, affects what you can get out of your body. And so we, we see that with food. That's easy. It's easy to talk about that with drugs and alcohol and things like that. Uh, it's even easy to see that with uh, exercise. But what about sleep? We sacrifice sleep like crazy. And who needs sleep more than somebody whose body is growing at a rapid rate? So your your older children who maybe already have a phone. I mean, I know my, most elementary school kids have a phone at this point. I'm guilty my 10-year-old's got one. Well, there are real benefits to, to those young kids having it. I can be in touch with my teenager anytime I need to. But on the flip side... How much is that phone used for phone calls versus watching stuff on YouTube and TikTok and Instagram? Yep, exactly. And so I would say an hour before bed, learn to turn those off, plug them in somewhere engage your brain other ways so that you can get good sleep. If you can do it, your teenagers can do it right there. There's a mental health tip for my, for me. And for me, I would say, you know, during the month of May being mental health awareness, have a little empathy, have a little compassion, mm-hmm. have a little more love in your heart and in your conversations, because those really mean the difference to me. They do. They, okay. Can I tell you? Yes. Oh, right. Right. So I blew it. I, I blew empathy today. How about that? So the psychologist is going to tell you an example of where I was not empathetic today. Okay. And it was on my way over here. So I'm working at my downtown clinic, University of Utah, and not to get into it, but I had this whole thing, this to do happening where I was very frustrated with a staffing issue and, and it's, it was not worked out yet, but I was like, oh, I got to get down to KSL, record our show. I'm heading over there and, you know, I'm, I'm missing the streets on purpose that have construction to go down the right streets. And I found the right street and I'm like, this is great. And I'm coming up to turn left at a green light. There's nobody there. Except there's one car in front of me in the turn lane just sitting there. Just sitting there. They're not, they don't have a turn signal on. There's nobody in the crosswalk. And I laid on my horn. Laid on it like I was from New York or something. <laughs> and uh, their head popped up. And they looked around and then they went. Now, I hope it didn't ruin their day. But guess what? I've been feeling bad about that for the last half an hour since it happened because I realized, you know what, Matt? I don't know what that person was going through. I have no idea because that was unusual, right? Right, yeah. Right? Like there's something going on. Yeah, it could have yeah. been that they were daydreaming. I didn't even think about that. I just went right to the horn. And it was one of those angry, like, oh, you know, bah. You could hear it in that yeah, horn. Yeah, you could hear the horn. It the wasn't horn, a doot-doot. It wasn't like, hey, Like buddy. a da-da. Yeah. It was a doot-doot. Yeah. It was like, ah. Yeah. And then as I was driving the rest of the way, and then I ended up following them for a while. So I was worried. I was worried they were thinking like, oh, my gosh, this guy's going to get me, you know, and then eventually they turned off. I don't know if it was out of fear or if we were going different places, but they they turned off. And I was thinking, you know what? I blew it. I really did, because I could have given a little 
beep. I could have waited, and mm-hmm. they might have looked up and seen and gone, you know. Um, could have parked your car and went and knocked on to make sure they were alive. I could have done something like that, anything else, really. Um, and I, I had the very same thought of what you just said, which is you don't know what somebody else is going through. And I can't tell you how many times I've talked to patients about that, you know, to help them develop a- empathy, especially with driving where a lot of rage happens in our cars. And I got all caught up in my own stuff and uh, probably gave somebody a big start. So anyway, I agree with you, Casey. And that's good. It's good for all of us. There's a there's an old punk band and it's called the Me First and the Gimme Gimmies. Oh, love them. And that's what I feel like society is right now. Yep. There's a bunch of me first and the gimme gimme. Mm-hmm. It's all about me and what can I get. Yep. And I can tell you right now with my recovery, um, the blessings I've been given have been absolutely amazing. And I do know a lot of it's because of what I am doing and giving myself freely. So uh, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I think the more you can give, the better it is. Always, always. I remember when people was like, the real gift is me giving you a gift. And I was like, that is stupid because I'm getting an Xbox. But then you realize <laughs> right. how it's cool true. it really yeah, is. When you're on that side, when you, when you change perspective. In fact, um, occasionally I'll have somebody say, are you still doing that podcast? Like it's been three years now. And uh-huh. I think you and I didn't really expect it to go this long. No. And, uh, and I said, yeah, I do. And they're like, well, do you still like doing it? And I, I said, well, yeah. And they'll say, well, what do you like about it? And actually, that's one of my very favorite things about this show is being able to talk to people who are in recovery and see how they're giving back to our communities. I had no idea before we started this show how active people are in giving back and what a difference it makes in our communities, people who are in recovery from some sort of addiction. So I I, I would absolutely agree because when they start talking about that, their faces light up. And I think that's that's where you and I, oh, yeah. you know, have even gotten emotional at times. We get a front row seat to yeah. see amazing people do amazing things with their life. And that's going to lead us to our guest today. His name is Travis Ritchie. We're going to find out about his story in just a second. You're listening to Project Recovery. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent. It was senseless. And I will never understand it. I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson. And unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story, the struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Our guest today is Travis Ritchie. Uh, we got him from a previous guest. Her name was Portia. Portia. Portia Lauer. Great name. Yeah, she was great. And a great guest. She was an amazing guest. And you know what? She she has done such a wonderful thing for this podcast because we have gotten so many new listeners because of her. Yeah. And now we're getting this wonderful guest. And to be honest with you, Travis, I don't know a lot about your story. Uh, I just know that you were friends with Portia and that was good enough for me. So before we get any further, uh, what were you addicted to? 
Nothing. Then, like nothing? Boom. Never. Never once. To this very day, never tasted alcohol. Never tried drugs. Never smoked a cigarette. So then why are you here? <laughs> because I teach people how to overcome adversity. Okay, but you've got to have some sort of trauma or something in your life to, to get you to this point. A lot of trauma growing up. Yeah, I grew up in a, a broken household, as we call it in today's world. Um, my father is a notorious organized crime figure and uh, was addicted to heroin. And so all of my younger years growing up, it was the cycle of dad trying to get clean, mom trying to help him get clean, society, you know, the community understanding who he was and because of who he was not having a conversation about his addictions. Mm -hmm. And they were they were to go by the wayside. And, you know, then us children, me and my sisters really suffering based on his poor decisions. Was that a. That was then, if I understand what you're saying, that, that was public knowledge yeah. that your father was an organized crime figure, and therefore people, no, nobody really wanted to maybe push the issue with him yeah. about his addictions. Yeah, Pops was a menacing figure. Um, you know, a, a bodybuilder, um, you know, stood about six foot two, 260 pounds. And, you know, based on his physical stature as well as some of his connections in the community and otherwise, it just okay. made for a conversation that most people didn't Can want to address. Can we ask what community you grew up in, where you grew up? Yeah, I grew up back east. I grew up in a little town called Framingham, uh, basically the outskirts of Boston. Okay. Yeah. And so what was that like growing up in that? Because, I mean, we've had many people who have sat Were in- you aware as a kid that, that, that your dad was associated with organized crime? Uh, I was aware of that. I was aware of the drugs. I was aware of all of it. Yeah. So you had a front row seat to this. Front row seat. You know, and we've had people sit in that chair who grew up in, in, in not exact situation, but similar situations, that that's when they first decided to try drugs, yeah. to try alcohol, to try that. Because if dad was doing it, mom was doing it, and everybody around us was doing it, it seemed like the thing to do. But you didn't do it. I went the opposite direction. Yeah, I had a front row seat, as you say, for a blueprint of what not to become. That's interesting, though. I think Casey's point is that... At a young age, when we're immature, uh, we we tend to romanticize certain tough guy lifestyles, right? Uh, you know, watching the movies and TV shows, like and popping in my head as Sons of Anarchy and Sopranos. I mean, I, you know, that's I mean, that's what I'm thinking, right? And, and but without without wisdom, which comes with age and experience. Most people would fall into that, thinking that's cool, that's powerful, especially young boys. Young boys want to feel like powerful, you know? Yeah. So why do you think you saw it as, as a blueprint of what not to do? Because that's a tremendously mature statement, I think, even for an adult, but let alone a kid. Yeah, I, I can tell you looking back, you know, I had my myself with my mom and all my sisters, my siblings. You know, it was just a role that I had taken on at a very early age financially, personally, you know, from, from a protective perspective, you know, for me, it was something I just knew without a doubt, I didn't want to be out of control. And I think to answer your question specifically where it comes to is, you know, most of our nights, uh, were, were so tumultuous, Mm. you know, there was so much anxiety in the air and I never wanted to be in a situation I didn't have control. Makes sense. Yeah. There was there was many, many nights where, you know, you, you talk about mental health prior to this, many nights where, you know, my sisters and I would be asleep in the basement or pretending to be asleep in the trundle beds and, and dad would be high as a kite on heroin with a loaded three fifty seven revolver just standing in the doorway. Oh, my goodness. And so those nights really, if I were to look back now as an adult, those were the nights that forced me to say, if if 
I am needed in a situation, then I need all of my faculties about me. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you say you didn't like being out of control. And, you know, my, my father says the same thing, uh, who quit drinking when I quit drinking. Yep. But he never really got stupid drunk like I did because he never liked to be out of control. He goes, I just I, I didn't like that feeling. But me, I loved it. I welcomed it. I wanted it. You know what I mean? I actually thrived in that out of control scenario. And, and, and that's what I thought that I, you know, I did, but, and, and I seemed to do pretty good in it. But now three years sober, I, yeah, I like to be in control. I like, I, I do like that feeling. And I think it, maybe if you want to go back to my younger years, I didn't think I knew I could control those things. I didn't know that that was a power or a skill. I thought that I could obtain, that I could actually utilize. Yeah. Does that make sense? It, it does, and it's uh, uh, both of what what you're both saying is actually a very interesting commentary on our our early life experiences, right? So, so Travis, you grew up in a home that had um, unpredictability. Yeah. You weren't sure what was going to happen. It could happen at any moment. It could be a small thing. Often, it was scary, chaotic, and, and made you feel out of control. And somehow, you put two and two together that you know drugs, alcohol, and this lifestyle. We're contributing to that. Whereas Casey, even though your parents were divorced, they're both, you know, upstanding good folks who worked hard and created a stable kind of calm home life for you. And and therefore feeling out of control probably never felt too scary to you because you were always able to come home to a place of control. And when we did go out of control, because my mom and dad were known to have big parties and fun parties, it was the fun kind of out of control. Yeah, yeah. You right, know what I mean? Right, it was like, yeah. hey, I can't so, believe But that's it. even still grounded. That's not scary. That's not fearful, right? Yeah. Right. Like if there was a big raucous party going on and, and maybe something you know got broken or whatever, but but it was in the name of fun. Yeah. And, and you knew you were safe. Yeah. And it sounds like, Travis, you grew up without that constant sense of safety, which Correct. for so many children and, and so many adults who struggle with mental health issues in their adult life, a lot of it can be traced back to feeling unsafe and the unpredictability of safety in their childhood. Yeah. So Travis, you said you took on the role as protector yeah. uh, of, of your siblings and even your mom, I'm guessing. Correct. Um, and uh, you always wanted to have all your faculties just in case you need them. Correct. And and how did that uh, work throughout your high school year? I mean, were, were you a good student? First uh, of all, what's your place in the family? How many siblings do you have and where do you, where's your, what's your order? Three sisters, uh, one older and then two younger than I. Yeah. And in high school, good student? Good student. Um, you know, for, for me, numbers and, and, and finance and business were always interesting. And so I was the kid that was... You know, had the lemonade stand on the corner, you know, at the age of eight and always looking for kind of a, a small business or a side hustle. Um, and, and so, yeah, I enjoyed learning, still do enjoy learning. Decent student, um, you know, from a, from a perspective of, you know, high school. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was it, it was kind of the high school years for me were when things kind of got mellowed out after, after about 20 years of mom and dad being together. Mom finally had enough. And, and got the courage to, to go and set out on her own, got her own degree, um, and, and, and that's when they really kind of split. So those were our high school years. And uh, off air, you were told me that recently your father passed away. Yeah. And so you feel a little more free to talk about some of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, fast forward, you, you graduate high school. Uh, is college in your future? or Yeah, college is in the future. Yep. 
uh, I want to do finance. It's really where I where I come from. I'm a I'm a numbers kid. So growing up, kind of to, to rewind, you know, my dad with with what he did, you know, it was business, but on the wrong end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And so it was it was constantly whenever you're with him, it was constant learning. Um, he always had a, a kind of a funny one liners. And, you know, at the age of eight, they didn't really make any sense. But now, you know, fast forward and you go, there was some wisdom there. And, you know, maybe it was just packaged incorrectly. He's doing bit. business. It's yep. just. Yeah. yeah but that's, but the, that's the amazing yeah. thing. And, and you're going to be able to elaborate on this a little later in the podcast. But we have met some of the smartest, most creative, most hardworking criminals. Yes. Yeah. That you go, look, if you could just harness this and put this in, yeah. in, in, in like you said, new packaging, you would be unstoppable. Yeah. Yeah, undoubtedly, undoubtedly, and I've I've met those guys over the years, and you know had the opportunity to hang out with them, and but yeah, to your point of like the the SOA, the Sons of Anarchy, and you know the Sopranos. I mean that was that was really you know like kind of my upbringing. You know, you go even back further than that, like the HBO show of Oz. Yeah, you know many of those guys who you know were also you know around with my pops, and you know we grew up at age of sixteen. You know, driving. so I'm I'm guessing that uh, if your father hadn't passed away yet, you might be. A little hesitant to talk openly about this. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. You know, he passed away last year. And so our our mission with what we're doing, you know, in the world and giving back has become too big to kind of hide, hide under a rock any longer. And most people want to connect the dots. You know, for, for me, you know, as we'll get to, but for me, the, the, the real impetus of what I do is time with my kids. And so that goes back to as a dad, I don't have one. I don't have a role model. And so I think I can figure anything out if I have enough time. Mm-hmm. And so that's always kind of been my North Star, my guiding light. But it sounds like your dad did uh, take you around with him and spend time with him. Oh, well, we got taken around quite a bit. So what, what, yeah. tell, tell, me, tell us about that. I mean, Yeah, it was kind of the best of both worlds. Uh, it was one foot in and one foot out. You know, you'd, you'd come home from church on Sundays. You know, my mom's a convert to the, to the LDS church because of my father, ironically. Hmm. Um, and, uh, well, how does that work? Yeah, I know. Interesting. Right. So my mom grew up Catholic in Chicago and my dad's family goes back many, many, many years to pioneer generations in the LDS church. Okay. And so mom and dad meet and uh, mom converts to Mormonism. Okay. So your dad was the Mormon in, in the relationship yeah. in the beginning. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. It kind of had all the, all, all the right things. If what, you did he remain an active member? Uh, no, act, no. No, definitely not. It was, you know, there was Sundays where he would attend with us. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, for, for him, you know, we would grow up and it was just very, uh, I'll give you an example. You know, he'd come over from church and he would have the house clean and he would have dinner ready. And okay. then, you know, that was Sunday and everything was kind of okay. You know, you'd watch, watch the Pats game and, you know, yeah. life was pretty good. On Monday, um, if we were driving to school, if he was taking us to school and somebody cut us off, um, more than likely, he would get out of his vehicle and pull them through their window uh, on the turnpike and beat them. And you, you witnessed that as a kid? Uh, dozens of times. Wow. Dozens of times, yeah. Um, disrespect was just one thing that we didn't, you know, deal with or we didn't accommodate. Didn't tolerate it. Didn't tolerate it at all. So, you know, Pop Warner games. You know, back, So I didn't do too bad today with the honk. You know. Like comparatively um, speaking, that's <laughs> what you're saying. Like the you know, honk. When, when Casey said to stop and check on them, I immediately had this in my head like, nah, that's not what would have happened. <laughs> um, no, no. Yeah, yeah. We would have removed them and set them on the side and taken their vehicle, most likely given it to a chop shop. And anyhow, that's a whole different. Really? <laughs> so this is, this, is, yeah. this is your childhood. This was my childhood. And, and so, you know, what I say one foot in and one foot out, you know, my mom is a saint. 
My mom is really trying to keep us together. My mom is really trying to fight the addictions, you know, like any wife would. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, life is kind of pretty good. You know, we've got four kids. We're healthy. You know, the money's right, whether it's, you know, black or white is neither here nor there. But right. Kind of the, the, the things that a lot of women, I think, who may be listening to this don't want to talk about in society. Yeah. And to this very day. Right. So many people, you know, this better than I. We stay in relationships we shouldn't for different reasons. Right. Most of the time, it's children. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, it's finances. Finances, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, oh, sure. Right, and, and so whether this is 1984 or 2022, the the, the, the dynamics are there, the and, dynamics and a are lot the same. of it has to do with our survival mm-hmm. and taking care of our children. And we, we do make a lot of decisions that yep. ultimately can be um, self harming. Correct. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. So he took us around, and, and so you know, mom would try to recorrect those paths. But, Do you feel like he was uh it doesn't sound like he was trying to shield you from No, when you're the picking world. up heroin and yeah. and, so and methamphetamine. That was I was going to ask millions like of dollars and ammo. No, there's no shielding there. Yeah. There was a list of, you know, we're going to go in this house and if we don't come out next amount of time, here's who to call and here's where to go. Wow. Um yeah. And it was very cerebral. And so back to the question of why I never, you know, partook, it was a lot of those things. You know, at 16, I was the, I was the guy that was reliable. I was the guy that they could count on. I was always there. If it was midnight, I wasn't high. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't doing anything inappropriate. I was always reliable. Yeah, which regardless of maybe some of the other dynamics uh, that, that caused fear or insecurity with, with that sort of upbringing – there's a really primitive and powerful one, and that is little boys want to have the approval of their fathers. Correct. And so if you if, if that quickly became something you were known for, being reliable, then that would have been – that would have outweighed right. most likely the desire to try drugs and alcohol because you're getting approval probably, I'm assuming, from your dad like your dad would, could rely on you. You're 100%. I've never thought about that till you just laid that out. But he does that all the time. You're totally – he's – He's a doctor. Day one is a doctor. Well, it's a good it. story. You're telling a great story. <laughs> but, 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 but basically, right. he was parentified as well. Yeah, yeah. You're you're treated like an adult, and you're given responsibilities yeah. uh, in your dad's world that were probably a little scary for you. But because you became, you know, your reputation was a positive one. He's the kid we can rely on. That probably made you feel pretty good, at least in those times you're interacting with your Correct. dad. Correct. Yeah. You're exactly spot on. Do you feel like your dad was sort of grooming you for that lifestyle? Like, did he think yeah, that definitely. you would take over? Yeah, at some definitely. Point? You know, that was definitely something that he enjoyed. And you know, as we got older, those conversations started to happen, and it was never my desire. You're listening to uh, Travis Ritchie here on Project Recover. We're going to find out more about his fascinating story in just a few seconds. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Travis Ritchie, uh, who's never been addicted to anything. Uh, he's been going into great detail about his upbringing. His father was uh, a crime boss? Or organized crime boss. I think this is the first time we've said that on the show. Yeah. There you go. And uh, because of what you saw in him, you made it a mission not to do that to yourself. As you said, it was a blueprint of what not to do. Correct. Yeah. And so you were talking about your early childhood. Uh, you, you've probably at this point graduated high school, uh, and you've got to make a decision. Do I go in the family business, or do I go the other way? You went another way. I went the other way. Yeah, I went the other way. Went and got, went and got some education, um, then went on a mission for the church. But, but 
how was that conversation with your dad? Because, you know, you, you before our break, you kind of laid out the fact that from a very young age, mm-hmm. you were, your dad was taking you for ride-alongs and you were witness to uh, his crime-based behaviors. And eventually, even by the age of 16, before you graduated from high school, you were kind of the guy sitting in the car who could be reliable and you had instructions of what to do if they didn't come back and, and you were witness to everything that was happening. So you said, well, maybe he was kind of grooming me to, to kind of step into a role once once I was a little bit older. But how, how did you break that news to your dad that you didn't want to do that? That to me might, it seems like that might've been a hard conversation. Definitely a hard conversation. And that was kind of where we parted ways. It was definitely where we, you know, when, when I chose to go and get an education and, and go on a mission and really set myself aflame on a different path. That was really where him and I parted ways. And how did he react to, you know, like any father would who feels that, you know, you're, you're kind of diminishing their importance in their life. Um, you know, he's super upset about it, you know, and, and held a lot of that grudge, you know, even up until last year. Mm. So, so you go to set the, the new path of flame, as you said. Uh-huh. Uh, you went uh, to a little bit of college, then went on a mission. Mm-hmm. Where'd you go off to college? Uh, University of Miami. Okay. Now, University of Miami's in Ohio, right? Or Florida. Or it's my, which one is it? Miami University's in Correct, Ohio. Ohio. University yeah. of Miami's in Florida. Yeah. Right. I got you. Did you know that? Yeah, I did. <laughs> it's the home of the Sigma Chi's, bro. All right. I, I got you. Uh, so you go to Florida, which is a notorious party school. Yes. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I was there in the heyday. But you didn't party. No. No, for me, it's always been, I, I, I really knew from a young age, I was focused on business. I was focused on business, and I really wanted to, to do something different. Were you there when, uh, when The Rock when no. it was playing football for them? <laughs> no. No. Okay. no, that was earlier. So then you go on a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints. Where do you go? To Washington, Spokane. Okay. Yeah. And uh, how did you find that experience? Loved it. I went on a mission, um, and I apologize to everybody who's going to be offended, but I went on a mission when missions were great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I do. You know, I, I have all the elders at our home, you know, on a constant basis now with my wife and I, and um, I couldn't do a mission in today's world. My mission was 100% service-based. You know, it was in the middle of nowhere. At the time, our mission went from Spokane um, all the way over to Missoula, you know, like 300 miles in Canada, down to the Tri-Cities. I mean, it was huge. It was beautiful. You know, and most of what we did was, you know, find complete strangers and figure out how to serve them. And that, to me, is what And what a wonderful experience that can be for young beautiful. people. I, I would say whether it's through a... A, a mission or any religious organization or whether it's humanitarian. a humanitarian Anything. thing. Service that, is incredible. And it's such a growing experience to get out of yourself yeah. when you're a young adult and do that. So I, I can I can tell that that meant a lot to you and, and I would encourage people to consider that still today if they can find a way to do it. Oh man, to get outside yourself for those times and to learn the things. I think you know, we, we, you talked about this briefly with your mental health and the adversity. You know, I, I make the comment often as a joke, you know, the door knocking, a lot of, a lot of LDS guys will come back from the missions. They'll go, they'll start door knocking. Uh-huh. I think we should send kids out prior to the mission and door knock because it, it, there's a lot of rejection. There's yeah. a lot of adversity, right? Yeah. To get up every day and be told no 99 times to seek the last 100. 
mm-hmm. right? To, to deal with other people, to live with other men who are never going to be clean. You know, you've got eight <laughs> different opinions, right? Like there's yeah. a lot to be said for that. How do I cook and how do I shop and how do I just live about myself and, and garner myself, right? How do I actually take care of myself mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally while I'm alone, yeah. Right. And dealing with adversity. And dealing with adversity. So I, I loved it. It was a, it was a beautiful time for me, and and so I, I appreciated it. And you came home. Did you go back to school? Came home, finished up school. Yep. And and, and met a beautiful little lady. And uh, my my sister actually was set to go on a mission, New York, New York South. And so um, I was visiting, and my my wife, my current wife, she was visiting her sisters. And uh, life kind of all happened at the same time. And we met after church one day. It was my first time and last time at the singles ward. (laughs) (laughs) That's how you do a singles ward right there. You just go once. That's it. Get hitched. You're done. That's it. 15 years (laughs) later, life is pretty good. So, but but, yeah. So let me ask you this. In all all your upbringing uh, Mm -hmm. with your father and your mother and your sisters, did your dad ever do any jail time? In and out. In and out. Yeah, based on you know who he was, especially in the latter time, it was more of a negotiating process. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd, you'd get a he got a rap sheet for vehicular manslaughter, and you know then it turned into a chess game. Who are we going to put away, and why, and how, and who's more important, and who's less important? And so it gave me almost zero faith in the justice system. You know, anytime that you'd visit his house, there was people there, and they were just negotiating who was up next. And that faith gets tested because you find yourself in your own situation. Yeah, Pops didn't help me from a justice-impacted perspective uh, when the state of Arizona came after me. So uh, how does the state of Arizona come after you? Um, I'm I'm a young man. I'm 25 years old, and I've raised millions of dollars and running a successful hedge fund. And uh, we had we had a fund that was opened uh, quarter four of 06, closed in quarter three of 07, and raised about $3 million in that fund. And uh, that three million came from the state of Arizona and investors in the state of Arizona. And they have a rule there, had a rule there that says anything over the threshold of $99,000 must be registered with their corporation commission. Kind of a wild, wild west rule. If you equate it in today's world, securities laws for anybody who's listening are just as, as clear as mud. Um, <laughs> but if you, today's world, you can purchase uh, legal marijuana in Oregon, but you can't bring it to Idaho, right? And, mm-hmm. and even though a, a state may recognize it as legal like Colorado does, the federal government, if you have a U-Haul full of marijuana, will happily lock you up for the rest of your life. Because you're on a federal highway, right? Precisely. Yeah. So it becomes very confusing, right? And so that's how I equate securities laws to people who haven't spent eight years at Harvard. But at the young age of 25, you're killing it. And the tiger by the tail, brother. Yeah. Had the tiger by the tail. It was, it was a beautiful thing. All, everything that I had kind of worked up to, you know, all of the insecurities of childhood, if you will, all of, you know, after mom and dad separated and the financial constraints, you know, living inside of our, our van, living at members' homes, uh, asking for, you know, the Deseret Bishop storehouse orders, all of that stuff leading up, you know, when you're seeing your mom go through this as she's climbing out away from, you know, where pops had led her. Now you've made it. You know, I looked down at my Wells Fargo statement. I was 25, made a million dollars in a month, but I was numb. I wanted more. I wanted bigger. I wanted better. It was a psychotic state of living. Would it say? Would you say it's an addiction? Thousand percent. 
Addicted to money. Addicted. Addicted to the rush. So for me, I tell people, money is money is, and for me, money is never what money is. I can't sleep under it. It's not going to keep me warm, right? But whatever it means to you is the reason that you go after it. And so that money was that very, very, very deep insecurity for me. I knew if I had stacked so much of it away, that life would be okay for my kids. And if I had stacked so much of it away, then I could spend the time to figure this out, right? And as those zeros get bigger and those commas become more, that number that you're supposed to stack away becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And then you start to do things as a lifestyle that impede getting to that point. And so, yeah, it was definitely an addiction. I, you know, I thought today I would have probably been one of the most lonely billionaires you know, on the planet. Truth be told, that was my trajectory. That's where I was headed. And I, I spoke about it openly. I manifested it. Um, you know, I was running around with people where, you know, $100 million, it wasn't a big thing. $10 million was normal. And, you know, you, you think when you're 25 and you've raised millions of dollars in six months, you know, that's a noteworthy cause. For me, it was just work. It just was what it was. And so it was insatiable, right? And I was feeding that beast constantly. And so there came a point where I think that God had a bigger plan. He intervened quite harshly and, you know, life 2.0 emerged. And uh, the intervention came in the form of 18 months in prison. 17,520 hours in a concrete box. Wow. And, and that's because they felt you had violated that securities, securities law. law. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. How it works out, and, it, and it's true. You know, I have this talk now. I, I get a lot of phone calls now. You know, people say, you know, how do I unring this bell? And the answer is you don't. You know, when you're talking about securities laws, and you know, it's probably similar to some of the stuff that you do, it's very black and white, you know, in, in, in the world that you, you're in on a daily basis. If you had a wire transfer from A to B, mm-hmm. the answer is yes. Right. The, the intent doesn't matter. The ideology. It happened. Know, it right? ha- it, yeah. The answer is yes. And so when you look back and you say, did was this three million and fifty nine thousand dollars registered with Arizona? No, it was registered with the federal government. Mm. Well, Arizona doesn't need to recognize the federal government in this particular case. And since it was over a ninety nine thousand dollar threshold, you had sixty six of them. Hmm. So you get Game six, time. so all of those they can prosecute. Every one of them. My first plea deal was sixty six years. Holy! Cow. That was your first plea deal. First plea deal. I and almost passed. Now that. let me ask you this: uh, I know enough, which is only a little bit, about people in the crime world that their children sort of get on lists. Mm-hmm. Now, did that? Do you think that that ever factored into the fact that they're like, oh, we he's so and so's son? I don't have to think. I know. Yeah. It said in, it's, it's, it's in my court minutes. You can read So they it. even, they acknowledge that openly. Yeah, the judge actually used my pedigree against me. Yeah, that's what I in mean. In open court. Yeah, he did that in open that's court. That's pretty brazen. It's pretty brazen when you can read that aloud in yeah. the United States of America. Because um, technically your, your, your dad's crimes aren't your crimes. I mean, according to certain documents that we live by in yeah. the United States. Yeah, there's a big document that says that that's the case. Yeah, but I know enough to know that you, our reputations follow us, and even yeah. the reputations of our family. So there are there are plenty of cases. Sounds like yours is one of them, where kids of of uh, well known crime people uh, sort of get an extra federal focus on their business dealings and what they do because there's the assumption that they're gonna they're gonna violate the law like they're 
their fathers did. And there's and there's a much bigger fish that they'll hopefully hook. Right, right, right. Right. The, That's kind of where it rolls up to. Okay, okay, this is three million, where's ten million? Where's twenty five? Where's fifty? And what's he and really where into? This, where who, does this really end? If we hold on to him, who can we really get? Yeah. Right. You gotta think, you know, so so to to rewind for folks, I fought this for six and a half years. Oh wow. Right. And so when you're talking about a first time nonviolent, non dangerous non-repetitive mm-hmm. right it, yeah 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 whoa. yeah, yeah. Like, should like, have been a little deference given a little bit that. right yeah. then then i'll add this caveat onto it i sat down with the federal government the securities and exchange commission and the fbi the regional office out of salt lake as a matter of fact both went through my documents gave me a clean bill of health oh wow wrote a letter on my behalf <laughs> they did true story wow so you would think okay that might help should help should possibly yeah. right and and then this entire time, six and a half years, never once taken into custody. Never once. So you were at home and... Never once. Never hmm. put on house arrest. Never put in transitional home. Never once had the, the bracelets put on. Never once taken into custody. Hmm. And so you start to add these things up, mm-hmm. right? And you start to look back and you go, okay, this is a, this is a young man with lots of dollars. This is, a, this is a family organization. You know, there's some history here in this particular state. And the judge's exact words, they ring true to my wife every time I say them. He said, I'm going to make an example out of you. Yikes. There it was. And so for me, I wanted his words to be correct. And I was going to prove him right. And I was going to be an example. I wasn't going to be, as Casey and I talked about prior to this, that, that victim mentality. You know, I have a choice. I'm going to take this. I'm going to take this opportunity. I'm going to take this adversity. And I'm going to put it squarely on my shoulders. I'm going to figure out what was next. I think oftentimes when we go through this life, we think that because we do things the right way, I went on a mission, I served this, I did that, I married that, I did this, da, 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 da. I didn't do this. I didn't. I shouldn't be in this situation. You're not drinking. You're not using drugs. Correct. You're not. You're not Correct. Uh, Look at all the things that my dad was that I'm yeah, not. Yeah. Look at all the things I could have done that I did not. Look at all the things that people said about me that I didn't need to do. Right? You do this stuff. I do. We're all guilty of it. We shouldn't, but we do it. Why is me? So the bigger question is, why not me? That's what really struck me as I sat there in that six by nine cell during intake. And I said, you know what? I, I, I wanted a life of a big fish. I wanted this. I manifested this. So I asked for this. So the bigger question is, why not me? And the biggest, bigger question is, if you want a life of greatness, then you've signed up for a whole boatload of adversity. Well, that's true. You get a lot of attention and it's the crabs in the bucket mentality, which is way too prevalent in our society, where when somebody seems to be climbing up, there's We're a bunch of people down. to pull you, pull down, you down. Right? We love to set our, our, our heroes on pedestals in this society and knock them and off. And then knock them off. We love it. Yeah. Yeah. But the adversity for me is key. You know, I didn't want to sit there and I had this time. I got sentenced to two years in the Department of Corrections, state of Arizona. Um, Arizona had an 85% rule and then 90 days of good time. So I did 15 months. Um, Malcolm Gladwell has a book <clears throat> and he talks about 10,000 hours. Right. Well, right. I've read it. I've read it. Casey's read it. Casey can't read. Yeah, I did. No, I did. I read that where, one. Where did you get that book, Casey? Dr. Matt gave me the book. Okay. And I read it. <laughs> Is that the picture one or he has the word one? Pop up. It's okay. it's it's a graphic novel version, Good. but it's yeah. nice. And I've <laughs> also listened to the 10,000 hour song by Macklemore, so I feel like I'm pretty versed yeah. on the There it is. There it is. There it is. I knew there was a, I knew there was something there. And so 10,000 hours. That was my 10,000 hours. I spent 10,000 hours in, in a six by nine. That was my 10,000 hours to figure out what was next. What does this mean? 
for me. So I, I am just sitting over here feeling very, very impressed with that attitude that you are describing from the, from the get go of your experience. But you weren't the only person dramatically affected by Mm -hmm. this. You had at this point a wife. Yep. And how many kids? Uh, thank goodness when I went in, our littlest was about five months. Five months. But, he was the only but you're one. leaving behind a wife and a yeah, five-month-old. Uh, how did – that that right there, I mean, I, I, could, I can sort of wrap my mind around if I'm alone. Correct. I, I don't have other dependents. Maybe I can be tough. Maybe I – you know, but that must have seemed really unfair. You had a wife and a child to take care of, and here they are – they're making an example of you. It was unfair then and it's unfair now. You're absolutely right. My biggest concern over the last 15 years has always been how do, how do I protect Melissa not to get drugged through the mud because of Travis? Yeah. Right? And we in our society, whether it's through Instagram, whether it's through church meetings, whether it's through you know neighbors, we enjoy dragging people through. Dragging people through. Gossip seems to be sort of endemic to the human condition, right? Mm-hmm. Is that a quote somewhere? Can we get that up? Probably from Dr. Matt. Guaranteed. <laughs> He's a doctor. It was just a thought. So, no, but you're right. It is. And that was my biggest concern. It's she, she didn't deserve this type of treatment. She didn't deserve to have to come down the five hours each way for visitation. They stuck me at this little border town. I could see the flag of Mexico. You know, 90% of our correctional officers came from Mexico to work over in the U.S., um, you know, and so we saw, every, we saw each other Saturdays and Sundays in visitation in this little crappy trailer. Um, and so, yeah, even, even then, you know, that was always my concern is, is how do people perceive her? Right. You know, friends and family, sure. you realize really quickly who's supportive. Yep. Right. A lot of people faded away. I bet. Oh, brother. People faded away. Investments faded away. People who said, oh, for sure. We'll make sure your wife gets paid. Yeah. You know? Yeah. A lot of distancing, right? A lot of distancing. But. What was the opposite experience like? Did you did some people come into focus as yeah. as true? And so did she friends? and I. You know that was kind of the beauty of it. I was talking with Portia last night. You know, I meet with more people now, and Portia agreed to this. More people now are free incarcerated than a lot of my friends out in society. Most, Tell me what you what, what do you mean by that? I think a lot of people who are incarcerated experience a rock bottom, and and start to look around and go, what 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 is left. And what can I be grateful for? I don't have the ability to be overwhelmed by social media devices. I don't have people looking at me, judging me on street corners. I'm in the same clothes with the same hairdo, with the same bed, with this, right? Yeah. And so now I can really focus on what brings me fulfillment. And those people that are incarcerated oftentimes receive fulfillment at that rock bottom. Whereas we in society, myself included, you know, on my upward trajectory, there was always something more. There was always another party, another event, another, another car. reason. Exactly. Another million dollars to make. Precisely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I would take, it, there was a, there was a, it was a sickness. I mean, I, I, I had a fleet of luxury vehicles and, and when a new one would come out, I'd go to the dealership in my luxury car to drive, to purchase the new one, to drive the new one home, to then have a buddy come with me to drive, to go back, to get my car at the dealership. It was just nuts. There's just no reason. It just became a, a, an excess. Well, there's, you know, I think the, it becomes a, a, a societal problem. We, I think all of us um, are guilty of, of having way more than we need and always wanting more than we have. Um, but the reality is our early life experiences have a big impact on 
to what degree we get caught up in that in mm-hmm. America. And uh, you mentioned money was everything but money to you. Mm-hmm. And that's true with all people for all things, meaning human beings have the interesting ability or drive really to create emotional relationships with objects in their environment. So we call that objects relations theory. And money being one of the most powerful objects in our environment, uh, we all have strong feelings about it. And so as a young kid, you had plenty in that regard. And then all of a sudden when mom did the right thing for everybody and and went her own way with the kids, you sound like you had no resources for a while. Correct. And so that can create a ton of insecurity Mm -hmm. feelings around money. It's sort of like somebody who has a period of real starvation often can become an overeater, a binge eater later in life because they feel like, I don't know when my next meal is going to come. come. And so it sounds like you were for a while caught up in that. And then when that was taken away and you were incarcerated, you had moments of clarity. Is that what you're describing? Tons of clarity. There's no no distractions. But you found some good ways to kill some time. We did. We did. Yeah, I got very fortunate. I got very lucky. My time was easy. I did my time on, you know, a, a very minimum yard and everybody was going home. So there was a, a small business development center at that yard that was funded at the community college and all five prison yards met there Monday through Friday. And because of my degree and my background, I was able to go teach all the inmates at this small business development center five days a week. Oh, and it was the most therapeutic experience for me as I sat across from these guys, hundreds of them. And we talked about business. We talked about life. We talked about money. And I realized at that point that there was this real huge chasm of education and literacy that was inside the prison system. I mean, you said most of those didn't realize that while incarcerated, they could do things to help out their FICO credit score. When I mentioned FICO, most people thought he was a gang member. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, and so we'd start with simple. It is kind of a gang member, actually. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, yeah, that's yeah. an organized crime syndicate if we're talking about one. <laughs> but but you were helping them that. And so what you yeah. wanted to do was be able to give these uh, inmates resources to better their situation. Because I, I can tell you with my own legal trouble, uh, even my DUI lawyer told me, the system is setting you up to fail. Yeah. Don't let it. But it is. And you saw that firsthand yeah. with inmate after inmate, a system set up to watch them fail. From the beginning, yeah. Yeah. I would see guys, most of the guys that came down, their their sentence didn't match their crime. What I mean by that for people listening is uh, an individual would, would be sentenced for grand theft auto and as a result would have conditions Uh, When they got released, the condition could be no driver's license. The condition could be DMV fines. Okay, but the reason they stole that car was not because they were a car enthusiast. They weren't at Barrett Jackson trading it. Right. Right. They weren't waxing it. They sold it because they were a drug addict trying to get drugs. That's why they stole the car. But they weren't addressing the issue of their drugs. No, they never went to the root cause. And so I'd see these guys come in over and over and you'd look at their paperwork and the paperwork didn't match the person. And that to me was where the opportunity lied. Um, and still is to this very day. And so I thought, you know what? If we could really get to the root cause of why people are doing this. And so I had a year. I had my 10,000 hours to figure it out. And everything, within reason, I hate to use absolutes, but everything came down to either drugs, an addiction of some sort, or money. And one usually preceded the other. And and people become desperate. Correct. And one of the things that I, I think anyone who's a listener to this show has realized is that really, really good people do bad things yep. when they become desperate and and have to feed an addiction, whether it's a physical addiction 
or something like poverty. You know, you, I mean, uh, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the, 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 the musical Stole the Bread. Uh, Aladdin? <laughs> nope. Uh, <laughs> Is that a musical? The French, the French Revolution. Les Miserables. Les Miserables, right? So that it's, the story has been told for a long time, I guess is my point. And that is that, uh, if, what a brilliant way to look at that. If you can understand a person and the root cause of their problematic behavior, then real change can happen. Just punishing people, Mm -hmm. just providing a punishment, that does often nothing. If anything, it costs our society Way more. Way more money in time and money mm-hmm. and resources. It does. Well, and you look at the prison system in general, and, and these are statistics, not you know gospel according to Travis, but if, if you had eight out of ten Delta airplanes fall out of the sky today and tomorrow and the next day, and, and, and that was the normal course of business over the next years, there would be no Delta Airlines. Sure. Right? And so I use that eight out of ten because that's the percentage of inmates that go and reenter society that come back to prison in the first year. The recidivism. The recidivism rate is north of 80% in the United States of America. Which is just it's through the ridiculous. Roof. No, no other system would be in business, Precisely. to your point. Precisely. You would never, you'd never get more people and more money next year. <laughs> no. Right? Right. And that's, and that's what happens. And so you start to go, okay. So then, you know, okay, Travis, you've complained about it long enough, but like, like what do you do about it? Right? So what do you do? Right. Exactly. What do you do about it? So um, you look at, what we're getting, you can't get a live tree with, from a dead branch. And oftentimes prisons are built in terrible cities because they're far outskirts, right? They're small towns. And where else do you get a job that pays you 40 and 40 with medical benefits and allows you to retire at the age of 62 and a half in this town? The prison. The prison, yeah. Precisely. And so it's kind of this cycle over and over and your dad was there and your brother was there and your uncle was there and your grandpa was there and that's generally how it works and so and that's I've, on both sides that's, that's in absolutely. the prison and working at the prison <laughs> yeah, I mean, it. I mean it that, it, it's both sides you're absolutely right and you'd see these guys and so you know if you really meet a, a, a human corrections officer that, that will really give you the honest truth they'll tell you hey I've done more time than all these guys you know I'm just as institutionalized as these guys you get a guy who goes quote unquote to prison every day for 10 hours a day for 30 years that's an institutionalized human they drive a certain way they talk a certain way they interact with folks a certain way they're scared to death to give out their gmail because somebody might know them as a co like these yep. people are definitely positioned differently i've met with thousands of them and so on to your point both sides of that aisle right they talk and they interact almost identically even though they think that they're so different so what do you do, right? And so I say, okay, well, like there's got to be a solution. And in my opinion, the solution was education. Um, you're talking about in statistically 65% of anybody who's been incarcerated in America doesn't have a GED. So let's start there. 30 some percent of every juvenile currently incarcerated, the first time they ever did an addictive substance was with their parents, one or the other. Wow. You start to see these patterns, these trends, right? And so then I ask, well, what's the biggest difference? And the answer always comes back to education. Education and literacy, education and literacy. And the only thing that I knew at the time that that was so important to me and really changed my life was money, was financial literacy. So I started with a financial literacy course while I was in prison. I wrote it and wrote it and wrote it. And I said, look, you know, Dr. Matt, we're gonna get, we're gonna get Equifax and Experian and TransUnion. We're gonna get your credit mm-hmm. report. We're gonna, you can get it twice for free, a year. 
And I just started with the simple education Things process. Things that, that most people don't really never, know. Yeah. Never, Doc. Never, never, never. And, and, and let me tell you why. If I can get you out with a 640 credit score and you can go down to the car lot and you can lease a car for a buck ninety nine a month, $199, and you don't have to get a buy here, pay here, $850 1964 oh. Kia Saturn. Teaching people that that's a bad idea is a good Terrible. place to start. And, and then you can get to your job and you don't have to sell dope to make your $800 car payment and you don't have to put your kids in jeopardy. It's a life changer. The 640 credit score is a life changer. I didn't realize that at the time, but that was my knowledge. That was my superpower was to give these guys that knowledge. So we started with that financial literacy course. When I exited after my year, my 15 months, I gave it back to the prison and it was like wildfire, wildfire. It was such a positive response. Everybody wanted me to come in and teach it. And it started with the very basics of financial literacy and it turned into, hey man, I'm never getting out. Can my kids contact you about 401ks? IRAs, and and I'll I'll, I'll tell you my legacy story if I never get to tell it again. People go, what do you want out of this? And my story is this. I want someday to be somewhere in some unknown city, and I want someone to, you know, recognize me. And I I want them to say, I've never met you, but because you helped this person, that person helped me, and that person changed my life. Mm. That's the bigger picture of why I'm doing this. Um, I now provide education and curriculum and content through my nonprofit, Accomplished Ventures, we're the largest provider of prison content in the United States. Really? Yeah. That is amazing. That is amazing. I'm telling you, I told you this was going to be an awesome one. (laughs) Yeah. It's a beautiful journey, man. It's an incredible experience. I get to meet with, on a nightly basis, uh, the inmates have tablets. I don't know if a lot of people know that. Kind of like an iPad, if you will. I believe that in America, you won't go down to prison in the next three to five years without a tablet. I can, as one corrections officer, I can FaceTime a thousand inmates. As one corrections officer, I can email a thousand inmates. So it's a technological advantage, mm-hmm. but it's a money saving at the end of the day. Sure. And anytime the DOC or the BOP can save dollars, it becomes a very good idea to them. Yeah. Um, 2023, you're going to have the Pell Grants coming out for the first time for incarcerated citizens. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be able to have college courses now Zoomed through your tablets. So there's a lot of benefits to these tablets. Um, on a nightly basis, we have about 42 different programs from meditation to mindfulness to yoga to exercise to business 101, financial literacy, the kind of list goes on. And on a nightly basis, we do a chicken soup for the incarcerated soul. All um, right. You know, it's about 60 minutes of a mini TEDx talk yeah. um, about somebody who's lived a life, had a tough time and how they overcame it. And then about 30 minutes of mindfulness. They listen to it in the morning, listen to it in the evening, but we, we visit via tablets about 500,000 inmates every day. Wow. That is incredible. Making your mess your message. And that's what that's I love it, about it, man. And uh, I, I love using technology in a positive way. Yes. One of the things I said at the very beginning of the outset of this show before we got into Travis's story was, was sort of a negative commentary on what technology can do to all it's of us. It's a blessing and a curse. But technology... Uh, can be used for such good. And this is such a great example. 500,000 people are benefiting from that. Yeah, the goal is a million by 2023. We're, we're on pace to do that. So we'll hopefully touch a million now, lives. what do you say? Okay, so I'm going to go the other way. Yeah. So what do you say? Because there, there are probably people listening to this show that have a different mindset. Yeah. Uh, the victim mindset. I, I won't. Well, I was going to say a conservative mindset. They say, mm-hmm. why should we be... Mm-hmm doing this for people in prison. These people broke the law. Yep, they did. 
They they have committed crimes. They've hurt other people. Yep. They're there for a reason. Why on earth should we be giving them tablets? Why should we be educating them? Why should we be giving, giving them these things that other people who haven't broken the law don't have? Yeah. So the the knee-jerk answer is, you know, for the first – for the person who's without sin to, fast, to cast the first stone. That's always a good one, but um, – <laughs> But the professional answer is very simple. If, if people really educated themselves about the dollars that are being taken from their paychecks and their husband's paychecks on a daily basis – to incarcerate citizens around the country, you would be appalled and there would be blood in the streets. If people knew what was really happening. If you really, really dove into where your dollars are going, if you really understood the $86 billion a year that are spent on a broken system, you'd be appalled. You've got about 85% of people that are incarcerated that will in some day come out to the streets. They're going to come out. Right. So when they come out, what's our options? They could be taxpayers. They could be job seekers. They could even be employers. They could be educated folks. Or we could put them back into the system and you can continue to pay into a system that is not going to because they come out or them. They have no options. They nope. become desperate. They break the law again. They go right back into prison. One thousand percent. And yeah. your children someday will be dealing with the burdens that society from them has placed on your children's taxes. So let me ask you this then. I love research. Because I feel a lot of comfort in being able to look at at outcomes of research that help guide our decisions going yeah. forward in any capacity. Are you guys keeping research? Tons of it. Tons of data. On this because what would be fascinating to me would be to see your recidivism rate for people that participate in your program yeah. versus the general prison population yeah. and their recidivism rate. Have you guys been able to look at that yet? <clears throat> yeah, we have a 40-week a course. goes through four pillars, 10 weeks at a time. And uh, it's it's mental, physical, emotional, and financial. <clears throat> we start with the mental because if the mind's not right, nothing else really matters. Um, we walk people out of the victim mindset. I tell people, um, felon is, is is a noun. That's it. If the word felon is a noun, when we put an adjective in front of a word, it gives it color: short hair, no hair, bald hair, blonde hair. Right? The ad- curly hair, adorable, by the way. But <laughs> he's right, though. Yeah, he is. Right. Girls like the curls, right? Uh, so, so it gives it some personality, right? It gives it, yeah. you, you can see it in your mind. And so I told them like, you know, from this day forward, you're going to be accomplished. We're not going to be felons. We're not going to be victims. We're not going to say that we are what we are. And that's where Accomplished Ventures was born. So we start with the mind and we move into the body. I love it. When the body is right, and, and I'm not, I don't expect everyone to look like Michael Phelps in a Speedo, but I expect you to be engaged in life, right? And, mm-hmm. and sweat creates sanity in any capacity, it's healthy. It absolutely healthy. Um, you probably have a million studies on research. I can tell you that every guy who's on the yard, who's in shape, acts more appropriately. End of story. Um, you care about yourself. So the mind is right. The body is right. And then you go, okay, like spiritually, like what am I doing? What's my why? All right. What am mm-hmm. I here? You know, uh, research will tell you about you, we get about 78 birthdays here in this world. Anything else is icing. Yeah. That's the life expectancy, right? right. Typically. So how many have you burned? And I have them write it on the top corner of the page when we start. How many have you burned? And what's left? And you start to realize, okay, of those 78, how many times do you see your loved ones? How many times do you see your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, whoever it might be, your wife, whoever it is, the people that you claim are important to you, it's probably not every day. Three times a year? Four times a year? Yeah. All right. So Good let's point. say it's six times a year. Let's say you're 50. So you got 28 times six. That's all you got left. 
You literally have 130 visits left till you're dead. Wow. That's it. Perspective. Perspective. Sobering. Once you find out why I'm here, then the money comes. You've got to be the man that gets the bag before you can get the bag. That's it. That's the end of the story. I don't think that God will reward you. God, the universe, spirituality, business partners, whatever it is, I don't think that you get rewarded. I don't think that you get the bag unless you become the man. A lot of people will get that dollar before they are the man, and it goes away just as quickly as it came. A lot of people have that story. We've heard it. We've seen it. Um, And so that's our 40-week program. We walk those individuals through that. They take it every year. Starts the day that they go down. And that's our perspective shift. So from that, to answer your question, we've had many states run recidivism data on our program. Um, the biggest one was done in the California Department of Corrections system where they took 1,000 guys. We went, them, we went toe-to-toe for three years. After three years, their recidivism rate was 78%. Their data, not ours. After three years, we had nine. Wow. That's awesome. You're kidding. I promise you. Oh, my gosh. That's but we amazing. change it from a different perspective, and I'll give people some tangible stuff because hopefully there's people listening to this that are actually able to make a change in the state of Utah is this. So, for example, let's talk about identity. Let's talk about men. What gives typically a man his identity? Employment. Sure. Right? Money. His job. Exactly. His house. Exactly. His car. You got his it. His wife. Right. So if we know that, and that's indi- that's indicative whether you're in prison or not – how do we set those individuals up prior to release for those things? So in some other states, what we've done using technology is we put people in front of a screen, in front of a television, and I give them a narrative. Because the narrative doesn't serve you that the, the DA was a jerk and your co-defendant screwed you over and your they baby mama. They made an mama, example out of blah, me. Blah, blah, blah. You're right. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, totally. I cry all day long you read my minute entries. But you know what? I got 15 months. It's game time, brother. All I know how to do is step up and hit it. So... Let me give you a narrative, and it goes like this. Hey, Dr. Matt, for the last three years, I've been incarcerated. And the reason that I applied to your job posting is because while incarcerated, I learned A, B, and C about myself. And I think that directly correlates and brings some value to your organization in ways one, two, and three. Now, I don't want to waste 36 more minutes of my life or yours. So if we can't continue this conversation based on my background, I'll go ahead and excuse myself. Wow. I like it. I I've answered all your – and you know what? You're right. Every single employer goes, bro, where did you learn this and do you have two friends? Yeah. Because you can't throw an orange in an Albertsons and hit people who aren't looking to hire somebody right now. Oh, for sure. Right? And so for me, let me give you that narrative. So that's our employment narrative, right? As much as I can give you the skills of the LinkedIn and the career builder and all the technology, I can't give you this tangible, let me own this Yeah. because you're going to run my social probably. And when you do, I don't want to have this weird conversation where you pull me off the line and what did you do? And here's what I heard. And I saw it on KSL. Uh, Bro, own it. Yeah. Rock it. Let's go. Well, there's power in owning who you are and what you are. Mm -hmm. This guy right here is a good example. Casey, from the get-go, has embraced a a small thing, but I think it's very symbolic. And that's his uh, picture. He, mugshot. mugshot. I'm getting to put it on my uh, debit card. That's awesome. <laughs> you but, know what I mean? Just so I can take it out. So I know yeah. there's no backwards conversations and yeah. all that stuff. Here it is. Any questions, ask. Mm-hmm. If not, cool. Let's go. Yep. It's so interesting you say that now, you know, fast forward a decade later, you know, and my story's in Forbes and the Wall Street Journal and Yahoo Finance and everything else, so I can't hide it. But, you know, we, my wife and I, we start our new friends with these conversations. And to your point, people are like, 
like, why did you start with this? Because if you're going to love me. You got to know me. You got to know me. And if you really know me, you will know these things. 1,000%. And I don't want anyone to ever, you know, hit you with a right hook and go, hey, did you realize Travis was locked up a decade ago? Oh, my goodness. Look at this paperwork. Right? I never want that to happen. How hard is it to get uh, some of these guys to embrace that narrative? Because, you know Very what, that, that's a narrative that's probably been pinging around in their head for yeah. a lot of them, unfortunately, before they ever serve time. Yeah. It is. And, you know, it's it's such a beautiful thing. You, I mean, you and I could probably exchange stories ad nauseum. But what I love to do is take it back to the, I think that there's a place that you can go where you know you took a left turn. You can find that moment. You can find that moment. Yeah. And I take them there. I take them, each one of those guys there. And then and then we, we understand it. We unpack it. We dissect it. It's super uncomfortable. But that's therapeutic. That's changing. Has to be. That's life changing. Has to be. Because then if you can understand who you are. And then where you're going, you become unstoppable. I believe it. Travis, I'm going to have to stop you here, uh, but we do want to have you back because, I mean, you're just amazing. I, I have a thousand more questions. I, 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 ask. I'm going to be honest. I've never seen you fanboy this much. <laughs> you have been on the edge of your seat. Well, look at the, this. I know, is no, amazing. I'm telling you. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's absolutely amazing. And, Thank you. And I'm it's so grateful that you blessing. stopped by and we're going to share a little bit of your story because I feel like you could just talk for hours and yeah. it was all great stuff. And, and it's big stuff. Um, my favorite takeaway today out of everything is the perspective of your program. And that is you build up the person first and then the success comes afterwards. Yeah. It's such a simple principle. It's a universal human principle. And we always get it backwards. Always. We get it backwards almost every time. We want the success right up front before we're ready to handle it. Yeah. And I, I love the, those 10 pillars because the last one was finance. Yeah. All the other ones are building the person up. And I can, I, I guess I'm not surprised given that, that you have such great stats on, on the effect of your program. So thank you so much for dedicating what you do to these people that are going to come back into society and build it instead of tear it down. Yeah. Yeah. They will come back. They will be rehabilitated and they will support the communities they go back to. And I guess my takeaway would be education. You know, and we've said that when we started this podcast is what the world needs is a better education on addiction, on incarceration, on all things. You know, I mean, information is power and we've got to be able to give these guys this information. If not, you're right. They're doomed to do the same thing over and over again. And then we go like, I don't know why it didn't work. We haven't changed anything in 70 years. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. I I, I left the prison the other day and, and, and when we walked out. Uh, they said, man, they, we all turned around and one guy said, man, I just wonder why it doesn't work in there. And I looked over at him and I said, you realize uh, communication and compassion stops when we enter that door. But yet we turn back around and wonder why, why it doesn't work in there. Yeah. Yeah. If people want more information about all the things that you do, where do they go? Accomplishedventures.org. I love it. Travis, thank you very much. I've got some business i got to take care of at home. I just got a text from my son. Yeah? Hey, Dad, can I get a practice butterfly knife for my birthday? <laughs> Important dad stuff right <laughs> yeah, there. You know right? what I mean? Yeah. So i got to take care of that. <laughs> hey, thank you for stopping by and listening to the podcast today. Don't forget, Project Recovery is a KSL podcast. Love you, buddy.
The contents of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.